1863, along the Tug Fork of the Big Sandy River, the river that divides Virginia and Kentucky, there wound up being a feud. Anybody know who the feud was between? The Hatfields and the McCoys. This is a picture of the Hatfields, right? They thought they were way different from each other. They felt like they represented completely different things, like there couldn't be more different in the world. We look at them now, the difference between those two families, and we're like, yeah, with all the diversity we know, not so diverse. But they felt like they represented a way of life that was different than the other. The Hatfields lived in Virginia, and they were well-to-do. They owned a lumber mill, and they were well-connected with regard to their politicians, connections, and that kind of stuff. The McCoys, they lived in Kentucky. They didn't own much. Um, they didn't have much uh, uh, an elite background, if you will. They were kind of, I don't know, just Appalachian folks. And, um, and so they were just very different. One fought for the Union, the other fought for the Confederacy. And, and that's kind of how it started. Aza Hansen McCoy was serving the Union Army, he was walking back to his home after his military service and he was ambushed by a bunch of the Hatfields and he was killed. And that started the feud. You did this to us and so we're going to do this to you. It went on for decades, generations, right? And it was over stupid stuff. They fought once, they had a big fight and, and fought. A guy was killed over a hog. Seriously. And it was so incredibly violent. I mean, one New Year's day in the wee hours of the morning, one family, I'm not gonna tell you which is which on these family things, but one family went across the state line, surrounded their house, and just shot into their home, and that became known as the uh, New Year's Eve massacre. On another occasion, a family grabbed up, they went across state lines, grabbed up several family members, kidnapped them, brought them across state lines, tried them on their soil, um, illegally getting them there, convicted them, and then put them to death, buried them in a shallow grave outside the courthouse, and then paved over the grave. Who paves over a cemetery? Right? It was, it was horrible. And again, this went on for generations. Look at this picture. I mean, whoops, go to the picture. Back one. Can we go backwards? There we go. I mean, whole generations with firearms, learning to hate, teaching their children to hate, becoming obsessed with the other family, just obsessed with them, and teaching them and wanting them to hate. Anybody can hate. It takes courage to reconcile. Well, this was likely the situation with Caiaphas. He was obsessed with um, Jesus. It was an obsession for him. Let's review who he was. Caiaphas was the longest serving uh, high priest in Jerusalem's history. He served there 18 years. He was the son-in-law of Annas who went before him. He had 
of anyone the most motives for keeping everything the same, the status quo. They were doing well. The business model of being the temple was thriving. Um, They really pushed people down and had them knuckle under, and they made a lot of money in taxes and fees. And Caiaphas was in charge of it all. Um, The story that we heard, the first story, is an indication of his obsession with Jesus. I want to encourage you to look at this story. It's on 981 in your pew Bible. Again, it's John 11. It's the famous story, actually. I don't know if you recognize the context of it, but it's the famous story of the raising of Lazarus. So again, on 981, starting with verse 45 is what we heard, but starting at the chapter is where the whole story begins. Jesus' best friend in the world was Lazarus, and he um, actually traveled, this was about two-thirds of the way through his ministry, he traveled all the way to Bethany, which was right next to Jerusalem, so kind of it was within earshot of Jerusalem, and he was there, and his friend had died, and so he raised him from the dead. And then he went on. Now, Caiaphas would have gotten word of that. I mean, he would have heard about it, right? And so then what happens is um, all the priests are hearing about this, and they wind up having a, a, it's like double secret probation. They wind up having this meeting in 47 where all the Pharisees are freaked out. Like this guy, he's just so popular and these things are happening. And what if people start believing in him? And that threatens us. It threatens the status quo, threatens our business model. So what are we going to do? And the, the, the text almost portrays Caiaphas like he's smart. But it's not really that smart. I mean, he comes up with this famous saying, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it's better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. That doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that if Jesus is the problem, you eliminate the problem. You eliminate him. I mean, this is kind of like the Sopranos. We'll take care of it, right? I mean, basically, we're just going to, if you're without morals and ethics, you just kill the guy. And then the problem goes away. Now, again, I'm of the belief that Caiaphas was obsessed with Jesus. Think about it. Jesus had a three-year public ministry, and from the very get-go, as soon as he started, he would heal people, and then everybody who was sick was getting brought to him. He was drawing huge crowds. He was teaching on hillsides in front of people. I mean, he was a force to be reckoned with, and you know that they would have heard about this. I mean, let's face it, the high priests, they didn't have Netflix, right? They had nothing to talk about. How many of you grew up in a small town and know the coffee shop in the small town, right? That's what it was. What do you talk about? You know, how much rain you get and who's in the next town doing what shenanigans, right? So we're pretty sure that... Caiaphas knew of Jesus for multiple years, if not for the entirety of his three years of public ministry, at least two of those three years. And he was like, I got to get my hands on him. I get, we got to stop this guy. We must stop him by whatever means are necessary. Jesus was a big deal. So then I think about what this scene is that we hear in Matthew's gospel when they finally do meet, right? He was probably like, I can't wait to get my hands on it. And then he's here, standing next to me. The first time they met, standing next to me, 
in chains. I've got him. So what happens? Well, again, we see that on page 908 in your pew Bible as Jesus is on trial in Matthew's gospel. Now, we can take a smattering of all four gospels to get a sense of that trial. In Matthew's version, Jesus remains pretty silent, but in the other versions, they try to trick him. They ask him all these questions and he doesn't fall for the bait. They bring in false witnesses as we hear in this one, but Jesus is smart enough. He kind of wiggles off the hook, if you will. But Matthew's gospel says it very clearly. What ultimately Jesus does is he just simply gives himself up. He knows why he came. He's here for that reason. And he says, I tell you, he quotes the the scripture in Daniel. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He offers himself up. Caiaphas rips his clothes, yells blasphemy, and he has a charge to commit Jesus to death. Again, this is not anything that's courageous on Caiaphas's part. He's just simply unscrupulously putting a guy to death for his own benefit. What would have really been courageous for Caiaphas to do was to maybe hear the words that Jesus was saying, to hear how the whole system had become corrupt and um, the word of God was being used to oppress and create a permanent underclass that um, they were getting rich off of the monies taken in off of poor people when they had this opulent lifestyle. If Caiaphas really had courage, he would have reflected on what Jesus had to say, but he had no courage whatsoever. The least courageous thing to do would be to put him to death. Now, throughout the series, we've been looking at wisdom from Tom Berlin in this book, and it's a great book. I would encourage you to read it. We're looking at that, what he says about being courageous. And the nugget that we're going to look at today kind of needs a little bit of a disclaimer. But Tom says this. He says, conviction is necessary to elicit the courage that makes action possible. Conviction is necessary to elicit the courage that makes action possible. Essentially, he's saying, you gotta want it. Conviction, you gotta want it. You gotta want to have courage. You gotta want it bad. Now, he says this in the context of Mary Magdalene in his book, and so how Mary went from this horrible possessed with demons thing all the way to being with Jesus at the cross and to being the first one at the tomb. And so he's kind of saying she wanted it and wanted it bad. Now we have to, again, I have to kind of give a disclaimer. I I want to make sure we don't fall into the mistake of, well, all successful people just wanted it more than unsuccessful people. That isn't true. Um, You know, there are a lot of factors and the people that I know who are super successful said, I got lucky and I was blessed and I'm thankful. Yeah, I worked hard, but I also had some things go my way. And so we need to recognize that as well, right? Because privilege is a thing and certain people do have an advantage up. Some people will always work hard and never be able to get very far because it didn't break their way or they weren't put in a position to be successful. So I want to be careful. But with that said, Berlin is right. With regard to courage, you do have to want it and you got to want it bad. And you do have to work at it. Conviction, you have to actually work to be courageous. 
It's not something that we naturally do. It doesn't come easy to us. It's not, oh, simple. No, you have to decide, I'm, I need courage in these moments, right? I do. And so I love this quote that he says. It's long, and I want to unpack it for you later. But he says, many people have an inner voice that tries to convince them not to reach out to others, not to be a burden, and to get their act together. This voice tells you that the good you long for is not possible, that while God made everything and called it good, you are the exception. It is the voice that tells you that God does not watch you, care for you, or has lost interest in the messy parts of your life. It takes courage to quiet that voice. And I think that's the lesson that we have today, the lesson that would benefit Caiaphas, the benefit us all is we generally tend to look at courage as I need to be courageous against those people. I need to be courageous against that thing that's out there that's in front of me or somehow like if there's a, you know, a health crisis, it's, it's always this thing that's out there. Berlin reminds us that the hardest work of courage is looking inward. The most courageous people look inside of them. That's where real courage lies. Because most of us act like Caiaphas. We scapegoat and we hate and we obsess over uh, somebody else without ever really looking at what's going on inside of us that causes us to be broken. Have, has anybody ever obsessed over you? I've had that happen to me if I, if I only had a nickel. And what you ultimately realize is it's their deal. They're the ones that's broken. That's why they're so obsessive. Because it's what's wrong with them. And that's what was going on with Caiaphas. Instead of taking a good hard look at what Jesus perhaps had to say that would have made the whole temple life better, he just chose to eliminate him. That's the coward way. It takes courage to look inside. Well, I'll leave you with a, an ending of the Hatfields and McCoys. A lot of people made money off the Hatfields and McCoys. There's a festival. There's even a dinner theater. Woohoo! There's tours. You can take an ATV tour up into the mountain and see all the places where horrible things happen. And yet they decided on June 14th, 2003, to sign a truce. You know what spurred them on? was the September 11th attacks in 2001. You see, because I think they realized that what happened was others outside of our nation were obsessed in a negative way with us and attacked us. And so instead of being fighting amongst ourselves, we needed to be united. And so they seized upon the energy of being one nation after uh, September 11th, 2001, and they sought to be united and so they signed a truce and some 60 people signed this thing and they had a big ceremony for it and this was the statement that they made they said we're not saying that you don't have to fight because sometimes you do have to fight and again remember this is after the 9-11 attacks but you don't have to fight forever we ask by God's grace and love that we forever be remembered as those that bound together the hearts of two families to form a family of freedom. 
And I, the governors were even involved. They made one joint statement, and this is what I love. They said the Hatfields and McCoys symbolize violence and feuding and fighting, but by signing this, hopefully, people will realize that that's not the final chapter. What's your final chapter? Do you have the conviction to really reflect on what you want your final chapter to be? Hope you do. And I hope it's not filled with hatred or feuding or anger, but rather your final chapter is one of a legacy of faith and hope and love. Amen. Let's be in prayer.